Our customers shared with us that real time meant real time. Okay, well, what does real time mean for me? Is it once a second? Is it once once every tenth of a second? Is it, you know, once a minute? Real time is expensive, especially when you're talking about reading and writing, you know, to a cloud or to a cloud database. You know, and so the first trade-off was, well, gosh, I've got customers that want real time, meaning like every second, if not better, um, and yet I've got a huge cost penalty. Well, how can I have both? How can I actually inspect the machines, you know, at scale, 30, 40, 100,000 machines, and yet not overwhelm this database? My name is Tyler Rohr. I'm the founder and CEO of Remotely RMM. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Tyler Rohr enabled enterprise organizations to see, secure, and support their hybrid workforce. All this and more on Code Story. In his words, Tyler Rohr is best described through his spirit animal, Curious George. He likes to write, try new things. He has three grown children, one who's getting married, and he's found that his expectations of his kids were actually met, which was welcome and surprising. He enjoys golf and used to do rally racing, though he claims he wasn't very good at it. He had more fun building the engines and less fun crashing the cars. With the onslaught of the pandemic and the rise of remote work, Tyler reached out to a former customer to run an idea by them. His idea was around a cloud platform to support remote users. The blunt feedback from the customer was that the idea was terrible if the users couldn't be secured. This is the creation story of Remotely. What we do at Remotely really is help observe, act, and automate the management and security and support of remote users, hence the name Remotely RMM. And what that really means, Noah, is when you think about you know, the way the last maybe 10 years or so have unfolded, I think we've all felt for a while that bumper to bumper traffic and cubicles and $11 lattes maybe wasn't the future that we kind of liked working remotely. And then we got our wish real, real quickly, almost overnight it happened. Um, and so what we do is we help large organizations contend with the challenges of supporting and, and securing those remote users at scale. We do it all up from the cloud shows Azure in this case, it's where a lot of large enterprises tend to be uh, basing their center of gravity in terms of their spend. So really the origin story was having lived through, you know, the adoption of a really interesting and somewhat esoteric technology, VDI, but then taking those lessons learned that if you didn't, you know, measure something, you couldn't manage it. And if you couldn't measure something, it was really hard to make decisions about it. We applied that to the current state and what we found when we started you know, reaching out to customers, and that's the true origin story here, we reached out to a customer, I did, a former customer, and said, I have an idea, here's what I'm thinking, I think that there needs to be a platform up in the cloud to help you know, support a ton of remote users, what do you think? And he said, I think it's a horrible idea if you can't secure them. If you can't secure them, they should be turned off. And so really the origin story was a synthesis of you know, my notion plus some really blunt early customer feedback. And, you know, I guess uh, the story wouldn't have happened if those two things didn't meet, you know, in the beginning. Well, let's dive into the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take to build? And what sort of tools did you and the team use to bring it to life? 
So it was about six months, you know, into the development cycle. That's where we are today. We're about T minus 33 days, not that I'm counting, <clears throat> away from, uh, you know, showing the the service to the public. Well, and it really, you know, it really began with, you know, I don't want to call it an agile mindset, you know, but it really was a set of kind of, as you said, a minimal viable activity and a, and a minimal viable value that the product had to deliver, you know, upon first login. And so we kind of, you know, together, myself, our CTO, who was the former customer, you know, went through what a day in the life of a modern admin looked like when we were all at the knock and the sock, you know, 10 big screens, all the tools that we wanted, you know, uh, nice air conditioners going all the time, and, and then where we were today. And what we found was, and this is really interesting, there were about 12 different tools or tool sets, some were free, by the way, that the typical admin of an enterprise of maybe 20,000 users or so, you know, needed to use on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we started going through each one of them and rationalizing. Well, why is this feature here and not there? Why is this feature here at all? Has anyone ever used this feature? And what you found was out of 12 consoles, there were maybe 20 things that actually were truly useful. And what we did was compress that in and that became our minimal viable product. We, we stuck to our guns, you know, started showing that early. Um, to your earlier point, listen to that brutal and, and honest feedback, uh, you know, and, and I think really a lot of that was um, more about the implementation than it was the feature set. You know, people were really interested about, you know, making it more um, role-based access or making it more federated or, you know, helping or allowing their maybe managed service provider to get access. So that's really cool. I mean, as you know, kind of once you start putting the, the center of the target on that MVP, you know, a lot of adjacent things starting to started to happen as well so you can't say we're done but uh you know i could say we're doing it <laughs> with any mvp you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs and you alluded to some of those about you know the the sock and the knock and the stories around around that and how you built the product and securing it that blunt feedback but but dive in a little bit give, i want to give open space to to hear about those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with those decisions well, I'll give you the most recent one, which was our, our um, uh, I guess I'll call it our inspection interval. Our customers shared with us that real time meant real time, right? And so um, everyone kind of needs to take a, a, a step back here and say, okay, well, what does real time mean for me? Is it once a second? Is it once once every tenth of a second? Is it, you know, once a minute? Um, and so one of the very quick or very early design constraints was real time is expensive, especially when you're talking about reading and writing, you know, to a cloud or to a cloud database. We, in this case, co chose Cosmos DB up in Azure, very performant, very scalable, not exactly inexpensive, you know, and so the first trade-off was, well, gosh, I've got customers that want real time, meaning like every second, if not better, um, and yet I've got a huge cost penalty, you know, and so I think one of the early trade-offs, which really became an architectural one, which was, well, how can I have both? How can I actually inspect the, the machines, you know, at scale, 30, 40, 100,000 machines every second, two or three, and yet not overwhelm this database? And the key is, from an architectural standpoint, we built in a stagger. Three, you know, real time right now for 100,000 is different than a slight wobble built in. And so that they come back one at a time, just over 100,000 seconds. So that was really cool. And it's just, again, it's a kind of a quasi-theoretical mathematician or intuitional mathematician. You get to kind of play with, I don't want to call them the suggestions of physics, but you get to kind of play with some design ideas that, you know, should you just stick to the blueprint you might not have normally found. So what ended up happening was we chose a parallel database, 
we write to it first, you know, and then use kind of the most important higher priority data, um, you know, in the more expensive data tier. So again, just a fancy way to say we chose tiering <laughs> in the end. Um, but it was cool how you end up finding those solutions. So let's let's move forward then. So how how did you progress the product from there? And I know you're you're about to release to the world, but even in when you're considering you're done with the MVP and and perhaps how you're going to progress it later, um, I'm curious how you're going to go about building your roadmap and deciding, okay, now this is the next most important thing to build. We actually invented a user and we named him Patient Zero. And Patient Zero literally was just that. He or she had to have uh, the most uh, sublime and elegant user experience, right? And so we kind of said, you know, we'd love to have the following features in the product. We'd love the product to act and, and behave in the following ways. However, what is the impact on patient zero? And so what you really you know, ended up doing was, again, it's, it's a lot of compromise. And I, I think that that's one of the probably another one of the big C words aside from curiosity would be compromise that we had um, and found in this organization. And, you know, one of the neat things, though, was when it came to roadmap, we didn't really have to. Here's what I mean by that. You know, we, we compromised um, as a team and we made some really elegant trade-offs, you know, to ensure that that user experience was always, you know, supreme uh, and really, you know, ensuring high value. But when it came to the roadmap, we kind of said, all right, so clearly there are competitors out there and, and we could do what they did and we'd probably get some of what they got. However, you know, what if, you know, pun intended, we went back from our brutal and honest feedback from our customers and asked them bluntly, what are we doing wrong? You know, what would ever cause you to stop using this product? And, and would there be an answer to that in which, you know, we would find some, some very interesting, you know, inspiration or new innovation? It turns out, you know, that we did. Um, we started getting really, really, well, this is again, even during the minimal viable product, you know, I'll call early beta, early alpha show and tell stages, we started getting some feedback, which was, hey, from a roadmap perspective, um, what are you doing about phones, watches, and wearables? And we said, well, what? And they said, well, we, you're dealing a lot with Windows-based PCs. Most remote users, pun intended, uh, have some kind of a phone. It's an iOS, it's an Android, maybe it's a tablet. They also might have a watch. Maybe it's a Fitbit, maybe it's Wear, maybe it's also from Apple. Any plans to incorporate that you know, into your security and support fabric? So, hint, hint, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, And so I think that's the other interesting thing, too, is to be you know, unafraid to take a roadmap that maybe you or we thought was, you know, going to be, you know, the next uh, maybe two to three waypoints on the map and change it a little bit, you know, or incorporate or compromise in, not compromise away from, but compromise in some of the, you know, uh, innovation that your customers might be sharing. You know, I think that we're also, I, I, I'm going to steal a line from Google and I'm going to, I guess, because I said that I get to, which is we're going to try to make decisions quickly, but if they're the wrong ones, we're going to unmake them just as quickly. I heard them say that once. I always thought that was just a really, really cool way to build software, which is be unafraid to make a decision, but if you can validate it's the wrong one, unmake it. You know, in other words, don't catch a falling refrigerator, something like that. <laughs> I like that. Well, let's switch to team then. So tell me how you went about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Well, I'll start with what I looked for and then I'm actually going to share what I found. So I looked for a definition. I thought that there was definition of each and every role that I would need to build this idyllic software company. Um, and I found that it was really hard to find those exact right folks. What I found were masters of their craft. 
And what very quickly came to form here at Remotely was we were a symphony. We were each masters of our instrument. We each knew our craft, whether it was marketing or ops or the the gal that runs contracts or my controller or the folks in marketing or the original sales or channel folks that we brought in. And really, my role was just to be... Uh, you know, an orchestrator, a conductor, if you will, of that symphony, you know, which is really interesting. A lot of folks have joked around like, well, gosh, what are you starting an old folks home for tech entrepreneurs? And I kind of jokingly say, sure, it's kind of what we ended up being. We have a number of very seasoned veterans who are, again, masters at their instrument. And then we've got some really cool young protégés who are willing to learn quickly and, again, are kind of unafraid to make mistakes. Now, it's funny, with a name like Remotely, you would probably suspect we were you know, scattered all over the globe, and we are to a degree. We do have some overseas, a large overseas development contingency um, and presence up and down you know, the, the East Coast, but our, our home base is right in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I'm not sure if you've ever spent any time up here in New England, but uh, about an hour north of Boston, and so if you like clam chowder and uh, $5 lobsters, uh, you're all welcome. So the, the team is uh, primarily based up here. It's a great location to raise a family. Okay, well then, let's talk about scalability. And and this will be interesting, given you know security and remote and cloud-based um, access for this product, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this, are you going to be fighting this as you grow and release the product? A hyperproductive question. And the reason it's hyperproductive is that in our world, there's a second phenomenon happening. Not just are people wanting to you know, go remote or not go into a primary office. We have this secondary and kind of major migration happening from what I'll call perimeter-based security to zero trust-based security. So to answer your, your question, we not only needed to anticipate and try to build each one of the service components for scale, we also had to build it in a way that was kind of zero trust first, you know, that you had to already assume um, an architecture that, you know, could deal with and, and overcome and sustain breaches or, you know, or different attacks. What we basically tried to do, Noah, was break everything up front. What was the mass load? What were the mass points of ingress? What were the mass... Um, you know, subservices that we needed to. And what we ended up doing was building the application um, in Docker containers, but really as an orchestration of microservices. So each one of the microservices in and of themselves is a security object with a minimal um, path of ingress and egress. But secondly, each one is built for its own individual scale. Now, I hinted before, and we are uh, entirely executing the application um, in Azure today, which is, of course, Microsoft's cloud, but we wanted to build it in such a way that, to your point about unexpected scale, uh, you know, should we encounter an extra zero or two or three, you know, in customer adoption, we'd be able to handle it. Now, the, the good news is that, you know, a lot of things, at least in the modern cloud, don't scale linearly, um, and one of those is, is database costs, luckily. So I think as we get larger and get a larger data lake and a data footprint, we're actually going to be um, encouraging and encountering some um, you know, decrease in, in cost, but you certainly want to you know, keep your chin up in, in so far as performance. So that's what we're keeping our eye on. You know, with scale, congratulations, economies get better, but you know, make sure you're, you're not doing so at the cost of performance or user experience. I love how you describe that infrastructure too, with every service being its own sort of scalable infrastructure, and um, that that just makes a ton of uh, a ton of sense. And 
And given the given the tooling that's out there today, I mean, it's easier. It's never easy, but easier to set that up from the beginning. So that, I think that's fascinating. I agree. I think that's one of the very unique, you know, realities of building an application in, in the cloud, specifically when you're using some of the new architectures and constructs, you know, that are available. Is you start realizing it's funny. I had a customer conversation yesterday about this topic, which is, you know, the the new stack is the API, meaning it's more about interoperability and the uh, option or the ability for your application to add value, extract value, or amplify value in adjacent applications or services, at least in the enterprise. Our theory is they're big companies. They've already made big decisions and big standards and big investments in people and training. Work with that, right? So to us, it's all about exposing new value. One of the examples would be, we think that a lot of um, antivirus is is owned and underutilized. You'd be shocked if I told you that sometimes up to 30%, 30% of the antivirus isn't updated monthly, monthly um, in most enterprise organizations. I can tell you some that haven't even done an audit since 2018, but I won't pick on them. But the uh, the notion is that, you know, you can't fix what you can't see, you know, so that's what we're hoping to do it remotely is you know, turn on that light in a dark room and show these folks what potentially you can start fixing. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built already, what are you most proud of? This is a strange way to answer it, but I used to love mowing lawns, and it was something about the before and after. Something that, you know, it was a mess before, and then somehow afterwards it was clean and tidy, and I don't know, maybe it smelled good and fresh, and I got lemonade. I don't know. So I guess what I'm most proud of is, you know, there was a big problem that I know exists, and existed before remotely came. And I I keep telling this to the team. What makes me most proud is it's probably the only venture or one of the most poignant ventures that I've been a part of that actually has a bit of altruism in it. I mean, if we can actually help people secure and support their remote users and get them out to their kids' soccer practice at five or get them out for a long weekend a little early on a Friday afternoon, I feel like we've done our job. Okay, if we do some really cool math and solve some neat computer science problems in the in the process, yay. Um, but I think, you know, that's probably what makes us as a team the most proud and certainly, you know, as a founder, you know, just puts a, a grin on you ear to ear. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one was we had, um, you know, I'm going to call them vortices of negative energy. That's all I'm going to, I'm not going to pick on anyone personally. But what you realize, you know, early on is that vortices of negative energy, kind of like black holes, you know, can suck a lot of really good ideas and energy into them. You know, and it was a hard decision for us to make. We had, uh, you know, in nine months, we had a few different, um, you know, opportunities where we, we had to make some, some tough decisions and see team members depart. You know, I think I look back at those and I think it was a mistake. You know, it probably was a mistake just not being the right fit in the beginning. And I gotta, I've got to bear some of that responsibility, you know, as a founder. So, you know, I think probably, you know, one of the mistakes, if I was to summarize it, Noah, would be moving a little too quick. You know, you move quick. You, you, you say yes maybe a little bit before you wanted to say yes to either a, a decision on a, a, a team member or maybe a piece of technology or, you know, something else. Um, you know, and again, going back to that Google rule, you got to be able to unmake those decisions as well. So it's tough, but that's definitely, um, you know, a mistake that I think I've made from a team perspective. You know, one of the very interesting things I was probably most proud of is we chose one CRM, got really deep to the point where we're giving demos to our internal team on that CRM and then unmade the decision. <laughs> they were, they basically came to me and said, uh, I ran a yellow light. Please don't give me a speeding ticket. 
but uh, here's what happened, and here's how I'm fixing it. And I said, you know, problem solved. That was another joke. We uh, we pay for speeding tickets here at Remotely. We don't pay for parking tickets. I thought that was a cool one, too. I haven't fully decided what that means, but it sounds sounds neat. Well, so you're releasing in 30 days, and so this, this question in the short term will, will make sense uh, or will be clear, but what, you know, beyond that, what, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? I've always been one of those entrepreneurs that was very hesitant to put the word cloud in my PowerPoint before I really knew what cloud was and to put AI and ML in my PowerPoint before I really knew what artificial intelligence or machine learning was. What I'm excited about with this is because we are endeavoring to get a ton of information from endpoints by and through our agent, a ton of information through the graph API, which we're reading through in Azure, and then a ton of information from the NIST CVE security vulnerabilities, we're going to have an incredible amount of information to start taking actions, triggers, and results based on, or or to actually kick off routines. And so we're actually using uh, Microsoft Power Virtual Platform and their Power Virtual Agents to integrate a little bit of machine learning. So we're going to have some intelligent conversation built into the platform. And I think I'm, I'm smiling, if you could hear it in my voice, because it, it's a real implementation. You know, it's not just big math. Um, this is truly a, a use case where, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence can actually enhance the user experience and, again, get admins out the door into their kids' soccer, or, you know, little league practice, whatever they're into. So um, that'll be fun to see. It's, that's about a year away. So we like to say we're in the business of observing first. Um, later on this year, we'll be acting, and the next year we'll be automating. So that falls under the automate category. Well, let's switch to you, Tyler. Who influences the way that you work? You know, name a, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person you look up to and why. I grew up um, in the 80s, and, and obviously during the 90s was in my college year. So I watched Apple from maybe a different purview, purview than a lot of uh, people saw it. You know, I watched Steve Jobs get walked out of his own company. I watched the Gil Emilios, I watched the folks from Pepsi, I watched a lot of different folks come and go, you know, before Steve kind of, you know, came back, and and really it was that time that we all kind of got, you know, the iPhone and and one more thing. So, I mean, I've got to put Steve Jobs up there, the way he would tell stories, the way he would take, um, you know, complexity and, and make it simple and consumable, and yet at the same time you knew there was just an immense wealth of data and validation to, to back up that simplicity. So I've got to give him, you know, a huge head nod. Also, as a tech entrepreneur, you know, he really started uh, one heck of a, of a software company, um, you know, that to this day is still, you know, I think resembles a bit of his uh, his personality and, and soul. You know, from a from a personal perspective, um, if anyone has any extra time, there's some some neat uh, writings and readings out there by a fellow that's not with us anymore named Terrence McKenna. Uh, and his brother Dennis, who is uh, a really interesting mathematician, and I think that crossroads of you know divinity, physics, um, and kind of what's going on uh, are also just what you know keep me going personally, and probably what inspire a lot of uh, what I do in software. So those are probably two names that I'd uh, throw to the top of the list. Noah, although we just met, so our, I think our future is bright as well. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, I uh, look at every startup, you know, at least uh, this is probably my fourth or fifth serious, you know, one is, is almost the reverse chronology. You know, and I think in the beginning, I always trusted, you know, that there was something out beyond the headlights. 
um, if that makes any sense, you know, and you were willing to go, you know, fast and furious, just knowing that somehow the road would, would unfold itself. You know, it, with this one, then um, I guess this is probably a, me doing it a little bit differently, so I guess I'm going to answer your question in a slightly adjacent context. You know, we actually went out and, and raised the capital to, to take that future state, you know, and kind of write the source code in reverse. If I had to do it again, you know, what I would basically do is, is more of the same faster. You know, I think that um, taking that, that long uh, strategic vision of where do you want to end up and reverse code for that is great. And now I think I would trust myself, you know, a little bit more to, to do that quicker. I was always, I don't know, at least as an entrepreneur, personally, I've always found that I drive the car with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. It's not always a smooth ride. Uh, sometimes you accelerate very rapidly. Other times you uh, decelerate rather quickly. You know, but I think that lessons learned the way that I would do it is, you know, trust myself enough that, you know, take your foot off the brake. Um, you know, you've got a great team that surrounds you. You validated the product market fit. You've got a great minimally viable product and, you know, a team and a channel that's supporting it. You know, trust in that. But gosh, it's still hard to uh, to let go of the reins. So I guess in the end, no, I'm still just a control freak. <laughs> hey, aren't we all? Right, right. <laughs> aren't we all? But but I like the I like the visual you placed there on the put it keeping one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. And I think that's that's accurate. It is, it is, you know, and I think, you know, you've also got a car full of, of stakeholders, you know, and so as much as, you know, I'd like to get to a certain destination or the ride to be of a certain quality or, or you know, pace. Um, you also have to be mindful of your passengers. That's probably another mistake I've learned, actually. I'm going to give another little addendum, which is, again, as a former race car driver and a fellow who has wrecked a few cars, I certainly have to admit that my pace of play and my pace of driving is, is a bit rapid, um, hence the speeding tickets, perhaps. But um, I, I think another mistake was, you know, probably being a little bit more mindful that, you know, with the other stakeholders, and you, you can't always be going a, a thousand miles an hour. Uh, it's, some, it's a lesson well learned. Well, last question, Tyler. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The best advice I could share is, you know, as a 52-year-old, I've seen, I guess I've really probably been involved in clinical business for 30 years, but the rate of change has accelerated. The variety, the velocity, the volume of net new ideas has has changed. I mean, it's increased incredible, incredibly. So I would tell that young entrepreneur that what you used to have an hour to get across to a customer or a prospect, you might have a half an hour, but you probably have 12 minutes. I think a lot of the way we need to tell stories and translate value and demonstrate that value is 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 going to happen more rapidly. I mean, examples are happening to me almost every day. Maybe I'm looking for them. Um, I do a little bit of writing for Forbes magazine. Yes, that was a shameless plug. Um, you know, and and now the notion of going from idea to print, you know, is ours now. You know, the idea of waiting around and you know stoically hoping a light bulb is going to go off over your head or gone. So. My advice would be trust yourself, get to the point quickly, um, take take feedback good and bad to heart. You know, most people are actually out there to help you, not wound you. Um, and if you take that feedback to heart, you know, you'll find yourself probably getting to the point in 11 minutes the next time. So that would be probably what I'd tell that uh, young uh, entrepreneur before they uh, put their headphones back on and, you know, went back to Taylor Swift or Beaver or 
Lizzo or whatever's in these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic advice. Well, Tyler, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Remotely. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.